Please turn with me now as we begin the sermon this morning in the Gospel of John. In the chapter that we've already read, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, starting in the 18th verse. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Have you ever heard Christians say, that our preaching in the churches, in our churches, should not consist mostly of gospel messages to the lost. Because after all, believers in the church need to be fed from the word of God as well. Don't they? That believers also need to be fed in the preaching of the word of God so that they may grow in Christ. But as we come to this portion of the Word of God this morning, this portion that we find in the Gospel of John, I want to assert to you this morning that the Gospel is not just for unbelievers. The Gospel is not just for those who are lost. We should not think of the Gospel as like a passport to heaven, so that once we've entered to heaven, it loses all its relevance. No, the gospel is relevant to us now, even as believers, and it will continue to be so throughout eternity. We see this in the word of God. Remember, for example, that when Jesus was resurrected, that he still had in his hands and inside in his feet the marks of his crucifixion. We see that when he demonstrates this fact to the apostle Thomas. And he says to him, here, put your hand here, put your fingers in my hands and see and believe. Jesus, in his resurrected body, did not have all those things patched up, as it were. But he still has those marks of the crucifixion. Also, as we look in the book of Revelation, which clearly is a picture of heavenly things, is it not? And of things pertaining to eternity and glory. I saw at least three places where it refers to Christ as the Lamb that was slain. Do you see? The identity of Christ as one who is crucified. It seems from those texts that that orientation of the gospel will be with us throughout all eternity. Indeed, even though the gospel itself is simple, it's a simple message that we are born as sinners, that we are guilty of our sin, that we need someone to save us from that guilt, even the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is simple. 
Even a child can understand it and believe it. But the love of God that is behind that gospel is mysterious. The love that is behind that gospel of Jesus Christ is deep, deep. Throughout all of eternity, throughout all of glory and our praise, we will never be able to exhaust the depth of that love of God that is behind the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you see, the gospel is something that will be with us forever. It will be the very matter and subject of our praise and glory. Indeed, is not the gospel also relevant to our own sanctification, to our growth in Christ? Because you see, much of our sanctification in Christ does it not have to do with more and more discovery of our sin. Don't think that maturity in Christ means that you get to a point where you basically can't think of any more sin in your life. It's the contrary. As you grow in Christ, you will more and more see how great is the depth of your sin and how deceitful your heart is in those idols that you have propped up in your heart. That is what sanctification looks like. And so as you have newer and newer, more recently discovered uh, sins in your heart, in the things that you do, the things that you say in your life, what are you going to do with those sins? Aren't you going to bring them to the cross of Jesus Christ? Aren't you going to take those freshly discovered sins to the cross of Christ so they can be crucified there with him? Nailed to the cross? Aren't you going to take those sins so that cross of Jesus Christ would mortify, that is, put to death those sins in your life, even so that you can tear down those habits of sin that you've been working on and tweaking all your life, destroy them, smash them to bits like idols of stone, and replace them with habits of holiness, with habits of righteousness. That is the process and the work of sanctification. On a practical note, I'm sure you're all aware of different schedules that we can find in reading through the Bible. You can read through the Bible in its entirety in a year or or maybe longer. And as I see that oftentimes these sort of schedules will have you go through a particular book maybe more than once before you completely read the whole Bible. For example, the Psalms. You might find a schedule where you read the Psalms a few times um, as you're reading through the Bible in its entirety once. And why not? The Psalms are our hymnal that is in the very center of the Holy Word of God. And indeed, the Psalms and the Catechism historically have been two key, very important tools used in Reformed piety. But I think it's interesting also that J.I. Packer recommends that as you're reading through the Bible, that you even give a greater frequency to the reading through of the Gospels, reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Don't think that once you are converted and you're a believer, that there's nothing here for you anymore in the Gospels, or that it's no longer relevant because, after all, you're already a believer. And so as we come to this gospel text, we might think, well, there's really nothing very sophisticated here theologically. There's really nothing here all that uh, intellectually stimulating. I already know all these things. (laughs) But no, I tell you, 
you will not be able to exhaust the depth of these things throughout all of eternity. And so with that perspective, with that spirit in mind, let's look at these words. In verse 18, we read, verse 18 of chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. I think there we do have an intriguing point, do we not? He that does not believe is condemned already. What is that teaching us from the Word of God? It's teaching us that we don't have to do anything extraordinary to be condemned, do we? We don't have to go out of our way to pursue it. We don't have to do anything special to be condemned. You see, we are condemned already. That, I think, is the first point that I'd like to, Lord willing, with His help, as we open up the text before us this morning, that I would like to look at. The second thing is, there is a very colorful metaphor used here in the Word of God as we read, starting in the next verse, verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil, and so on. There is this very colorful metaphor here in our text, using these concepts, these ideas of light and darkness to convey some great truth, even a truth about the nature of our own hearts. That is another intriguing point that I think we find here in this passage, and Lord willing, I'd like to pursue further. A third and last head for this sermon, I want to take a look at This idea presented before us here of belief. We see this in our text. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What is that belief? How do we understand it? We better be interested to understand it because if it's not the right sort of belief, not the right kind of belief, how can we be assured that there's no condemnation for us? For you see, it says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But what do we mean by that belief? If we don't know what we mean by that, how can we be assured that we're not condemned with all the rest? And so, Lord willing, those are the three heads I would like to pursue this morning. So first, condemnation. This idea of condemnation. Again, we read, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. How is it? Why is it that we're condemned already? Well, it's because... As we read from the Westminster Assembly's annotations of Scripture at this same text, it's by this ancient sentence which was proclaimed against us even in the garden. Adam was our federal head, and so his sin, which he committed in the garden, was imputed to us. As we read in our catechism, all mankind sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We are all guilty of that original sin in the garden. 
we read, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt surely die. There is the condemnation. We see this teaching throughout the whole of Scripture, do we not? Uh, For example, in Galatians chapter 3, we read, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So you see, we are called as creatures made in the image of God, not only to keep God's commandments, but to continue to keep them, it says. And not only to treasure them in our hearts, but to do them. And who in this room or throughout the world or throughout all of history has done that except the Lord Jesus Christ? And so, don't you think, given the sweep of teaching throughout all of Scripture, that when we read here, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son, it's not as if to say that unbelief in Christ is the simple cause of our condemnation. So, we are born into sin. We are born with this condemnation hanging over our heads. As the psalmist says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born with the wrath and curse of God hanging over our heads. We are condemned already. We don't have to do anything more. We are already at birth, at conception. We are already under that wrath and curse of God. And so we are guilty not only of that original sin which we have committed in the garden, but also in respect of our own actual sins. In other words, those things that we have done in our lives, whether it be uh, the thoughts and feelings of our heart, or what we will to do, what we, what we say, what we run to do, what we do with our hands. These are all our actual sins. And so we are guilty before God and under his wrath and curse and condemned already. Uh, John Trapp, we have as a quote in our bulletin, He's always a very interesting Puritan writer to read because his illustrations are always so colorful. And he says that this condemnation that we read of here in our text, so this is a commentary from Trapp at this place, he says that it is like the sentence has been passed and they are very close to being executed. I think it was Matthew Poole said, it's like, This expression we use about a a man who is dying, we might say, well, he's a dead man, even though there might be still a little breath of life in him for a short time. Or as John Trapp says, it is as if that those here spoken of as being condemned are hanging by one rotten twined thread over hellfire. It's so close to being broken. Those who do not believe in Christ are condemned already. But those that do believe, we read, are not condemned. And I tell you 
that there is a great assurance for us in the word of God here this morning. He that believeth on him is not condemned. This is expressed in a way of certainty. It is as if to say there is no doubt whatever about that. If you believe on Jesus Christ, you are not condemned. Even as we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So you see there's this, this contrast, this opposition in our text between those that are already condemned and those that are not condemned because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's come now to our second head, which is what we see starting in verse 19, this metaphor of light and darkness. Let's take a look at this and see what it's teaching us. We read, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither come to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved, or an alternative rendering there is discovered, that his deeds would be discovered. And so what is this telling us? This is telling us that as sinners, we are prone, we are given to hide our sin. We do not want the light of Jesus Christ or his gospel shining into our life. We do not want the conviction of the Holy Spirit penetrating into those deep and dark secrets of our mind and our affections. We do not want that that conviction, even though, as the text here tells us, we are condemned already. And Calvin says that as Christ here speaks of the preaching of the gospel, which was to be spread throughout the whole world, he directs his discourse here against those who deliberately and maliciously extinguish the light which God has kindled. And that's the sense here then of the darkness. The darkness would like to overwhelm and to extinguish that light of Christ. That is to say that evildoers wish that they could just stomp out the gospel from it ever being preached or ever being spoken of throughout the world. And again, why is that? Because they don't want their evil deeds to be exposed and discovered. They don't want to see their guilt and to know what it says here, that they are condemned already. Men who dwell in the darkness, that is, who delight in their evil deeds, they prefer and they choose and adhere to their ignorance and their errors. They prefer that because... They take pleasure in them. Evil deeds are so pleasant to the carnal, corrupt nature that to enjoy them securely, they obstinately reject the light of the gospel. And this, what our context is teaching us here, this is what aggravates their sin and the sentence of their condemnation. Sin, if I can personify it, wants to be hidden in the darkness. It abhors nothing more than the light of day. It does not want its deformity, the deformity of sin, to be discovered. Sinners love darkness, as we read here in verse 19. And men loved darkness, love darkness, rather than light. 
You see, this is not something uh, passive or nonchalant. It's not something without any uh, passion in the sinner. But no, this is a strong word if you consider it. They love darkness. They don't just like it. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They love darkness, not only that others would not see their sins, but even that they may somehow hide their own sins from themselves. It's as if they intentionally delude themselves because they don't want to think about it. They don't want to see the guilt of, of what they're doing. They don't want to see the sin of their, of their deeds. And so, why do they do this? Again, it's because they want to be secure in the enjoyment of their sinful pleasure. That is why. They love the darkness. Why do they love the darkness? Because there's nothing more in all of life that they take pleasure in but in their deeds of wickedness and sin. And so, what is the sense here in this metaphor when it speaks of the light? It is, as I said, it is Christ himself and his gospel. As we read in the opening of this gospel of John, in verse 4, chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This metaphor and picture of Christ as the light of the world is taught even in the Old Testament as they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. As we read in Isaiah chapter 9, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. The context there is clearly about the Messiah. And so even there we have this metaphor of Christ being spoken of as light. Christ, Matthew Poole points out, as that light has perfection in all the excellencies that you would think of in the qualities of light. Christ, as that light, has the power to enlighten the minds of men in the knowledge of saving truth. Christ, as that light, is able to warm the affections and feelings within us for the love of truth. Christ is that light can make the heavenly seed of the word of God to flourish and fructify, as Paul puts it, in their lives. You see, it's like the sun shining upon a plant that grows and flourishes. Christ as the light will germinate and fructify and flourish that seed of the word of God in your soul, in your heart. That is the sense here of Christ being the light. So the light of Christ lays open the deepest darkness of ignorance, folly, and sin that may be found in us. The light of the gospel discovers the foulness of sin and argues the malignity of it to bring us to repentance. And so this metaphor of light and darkness teaches us many things. One thing here is this idea of hiding sin. You know, 
the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels in another place addresses this, this, this desire to hide sin. In Luke chapter 12, we read, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Jesus says, Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which have been spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. You see that contrast? You may think that as a sinner, we can get away with these things. You, you can deceive yourselves in believing that. You can, you can think that when you gossip and you whisper things that you should never speak to someone else, that they are the only ones that will ever know about it. But no. Jesus says, what you whisper in those ears will be shouted upon the housetops. There will be no sin that you've ever committed, even just in your mind, that will not be revealed before everyone on the last day. And so here is a principle so important in the Christian faith that if we are to have a genuine and meaningful Christian faith, It must be a sincere faith. You must be the same person that you are openly and to others that you are in secret and in private. Do you see? And that is the key to integrity. You know, the key to integrity is not putting up a good front. The key to integrity is not looking good before others. The the key to integrity is for you to challenge yourselves when you are alone and when you are private and when you can get away with doing whatever you want to. That is the time to be a man, a woman, a child of integrity. That is where the battle should go in our sanctification. Because if we can be people of Christ of integrity in private, then we will be so publicly and openly. And so I say this is another lesson here in this metaphor when we read of the light of Christ in the darkness of sinners and sin. And so we come to verse 21 where we see the same notion that I was just speaking to. He that doeth truth cometh to the light. Do you see? He that doeth truth. The idea there is that, again, there's this sincerity, there's this genuineness of of life, which is so important in the Christian faith. I mean, what good is it if we profess faith and it means nothing to us? Are we even benefiting ourselves? What is the motivation to do that? If we're going to profess a faith and a belief in Jesus Christ, what profit is there unless that's real to us? I'd even say, as a word to parents, do we want our children to grow up as good Pharisees? Do we want our children, because maybe they grew up in a Christian home and they go through the motions, they come to church every week, do we want them not to own the faith of Jesus Christ for themselves? Do we want them just to uh, just follow along? And then what's going to happen? What's going to happen uh, in the days of their adulthood? What's going to happen the rest of their lives if, if it has no meaning for them now in their childhood? 
And so, he that doeth truth cometh to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. He that doeth the truth, that is, that does sincere works in which the conscience is assured of God's approval, whereupon they are exposed to light, as they are exposed more and more to the light of Christ and the gospel, they, they don't shrink away from it, but rather they joy in it. They delight in it. Because they want the world to see that the good things that they do is only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who do the truth cometh to the light so that their deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. That is our objective, my brothers and sisters, is that our deeds, our good works that we are ordained unto, as it says in Ephesians, is so that we may glorify God that this is not something that we have done, not us, O Lord, not us, but is the work of Christ in us, that it is by the grace of Jesus Christ, it is by the work of the Holy Spirit, that those are the causes of those good works that we have in our lives. And we want the world to see that even so, that our lives would be a glory and praise to God. That is the one who does truth. And so, they want their deeds to be shown to be wrought in God. That is, that is from a pure heart and to the glory of God. Otherwise, their sins are, as again John Trapp says, are just presented in a silken suit. Their sins are all dressed up in finery. But that is not the sincerity of deeds that are wrought in God. Wrought in God, that is, that they are wrought as if in the presence of God and according to His will. That it is with God, as it were, going before them in their good works. They are wrought in God as they do which set only God before their eyes and follow the rule of his word. And so I would like to turn now to our our final point, uh, which is belief, this idea of belief in our text. Belief is central to our text, is it not? And as I said before, we want to be certain of what kind of belief this is so that we will not be deceived and remain in our condemnation, that condemnation in which we are in already. We don't want to remain. We do not want to go down to the grave with the wrath and curse of God still upon our heads, do we? And so what is the nature of this belief that we read of when we read that he that believeth on him is not condemned? Well, let me start by telling you what this belief cannot be. It certainly cannot be like the belief, if we can speak of it in these terms, of the devil. The knowledge of the devil. Think about this. The devil, he has no problem believing in the historicity of the person of Jesus Christ, does he? Why shouldn't he? We read in the scripture of Satan conversing with Christ and tempting him in the wilderness. He knows that Jesus was a real person, unlike the professions of atheists. He has one up on them, doesn't he? The devil 
believes that Jesus was crucified, why shouldn't he? He was there when it happened, right? It was a time of great darkness that covered the earth when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. In fact, it was an hour in which the devil and all his kingdom thought they finally triumphed over Christ. You see, the devil was a key figure on the scene in Christ's day. He knew about the life and death of Christ because he was there. He was the one, the devil was the one, who entered into Judas so that Judas would betray the Lord. The devil was like a key piece on the chessboard of what was going on at this time in the history of God's people. So, the belief here that we see in our text, let me speak to that. Do you believe in the historicity of the person of Jesus Christ to the events that we see recorded in the Gospels? Do you believe what we read about the Lord's betrayal and crucifixion? Well, good for you. So does the devil. What is then this belief? This belief that we have here, when we read, he that believeth on him is not condemned, is a belief where we are engaged with our whole hearts. We are engaged with all of who we are, our heart, our mind, our strength, our soul, in the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. This belief here uh, is a belief where, unlike the devil, where he would never do this or cannot do it, but it is a belief where we don't merely understand the facts of the gospel, but that we place our trust in Christ. The devil can never do that. That's the difference. The belief here means that we receive the Lord Jesus Christ and that we trust in him alone for our salvation. It means that we believe who Jesus said he was, that he was the son of God, that Jesus is, uh, has two distinct natures, God and man, and one person forever. That he is the second person of the triune God who is incarnated, even to be a ransom for many. Is your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ a true belief? How do we know? Well, again in the Gospels we read that you know a tree by its fruits. Do we see, do you see the fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life? If you profess a faith in the living Savior, do you see that principle of life in yourself? Do you see those fruits of the Holy Spirit that we read of in Galatians chapter 5, such as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control? Are these things present in your life? Now, I'm not saying that they should be there perfectly or in full measure, But is there a change? Is there a difference from who you were before your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? And I understand for you children who are brought up in a Christian home, you you may not remember a single time when there was a change, but you can still ask yourselves, do you see these things in your life? Do you see evidence of this principle of eternal life flowing out of you like like Jesus says in another place in the gospel, 
It's like a fountain of, of, of living waters pouring out, coming out from your innermost being. Do you have that kind of experience? Do you see that principle of eternal and abundant and overflowing life in yourself? Also, and I'll just close with a few more points here. If you have a saving faith in Christ, there should also be evidence in how you spend your time in devotion to the Lord. For example, if you believe with a saving belief in Christ, do you pray? Do you pray? How can there be a new work? How can there be a regeneration of the Holy Spirit if you're not praying? You know, uh, in the book of Acts, we read of the Apostle Paul, who was at that time called Saul of Tarsus. There was a man named Ananias, who the Lord came to and told him to go talk to this Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias said, but Lord, this is the man that is persecuting the church. He has brought many of our brothers and sisters into prison. And the Lord assures him that indeed, this Saul of Tarsus has been changed. And how does the Lord do this? The Lord himself testifies to Ananias, Behold, he prayeth. Behold, he prayeth. It is as if to say, that the fact that this Saul of Tarsus is praying is now an evidence for you, a sufficient evidence, Ananias, that he has been changed, that he has been converted. This is the testimony from the Lord himself about this Saul of Tarsus. Behold, he prayeth. Brothers and sisters, would the Lord have the same testimony for you? Behold, you pray. Do you pray? Now, I'm not talking about what the Puritans called ejaculatory prayer, where throughout your day as you're walking with the Lord, something comes to mind and you throw up a quick prayer to the Lord. I'm not really talking about that, even though that's essential for walking with the Lord. I'm talking about, do you have a regular habit and practice of prayer unto the Lord? Do you have a a stated time, a time set apart to pray? Or would it not be testified of you Behold, you pray. You Do you pray? And let me just offer one practical help on this. It was helpful to me, and I'm not saying this, that this at all is normative for others. It's just a suggestion. Uh, one thing that helped me to form a habit of a stated time of prayer is to tell myself, look, this will just be five minutes. Just five minutes. Can I pray just five minutes unto the Lord? What kind of Christian am I? If I can't say five minutes out of the whole day that I can't uh, devote in prayer to the Lord. And so I used that as a motivation. I even uh, got a uh, a calendar and I took notes as to uh, how long I would pray each day. And again, I'm not trying to set up some system of legalism. I'm just saying this is a way for me to help uh, build a habit. That's, That's the point. There has to be a habit that's formed and then you can throw all these other things away. But I found that once I did that, as you get into it and you tell yourself, look, it's okay, you got time, it's only five minutes. I find that as you get into it, 
for some mysterious reason, you pray longer than five minutes. You get into it, and, and, and the prayer grows. And then over the weeks and months, you find that you, you're praying a much longer time. And it, it becomes a habit in your life. Are we praying? Are we praying to the Lord? Another thing that we can look to in very similar fashion is our reading of the Word of God. If you are truly converted unto Christ, do you care about His Word, the Word of God to you? Do you read it? You should be reading it regularly. And I don't mean only regularly, because if you only read the Bible once a year, it's regular. But I'm saying regular and frequent. Do you read the Bible? What about the teaching of piety that we see in the Psalms? For example, in Psalm 1, the opening psalm, we read that happy is the man or blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. You see, this is the stuff of that belief that we read of in our text. If we are to believe on him and so then not be condemned, we should see these things in our lives. And I'm not saying it's not a challenge or difficult to to form these habits, but we need to strive to do that. One last thing in this connection. When you are in the public worship of God, are you eager to leave it? During the service of the public worship of God, do you find yourself fondly thinking about all those delightful things that you want to do once you get home? Have you ever heard the scripture in Isaiah chapter 58 that says that on the Sabbath we are not to find our own pleasure and do our own ways, but that we are to do His pleasure? Brothers and sisters, if you are not regularly pursuing the means of grace, and these are all various means of grace, means of grace that God himself has appointed for our good, if you are not about the business of attending those means of grace, how do you expect to ever grow in grace? How do you expect to ever grow in Christ? Because these are the sort of things, not that we should make idols of them, And it's not as if we do these things, then we can rest in that, that everything else is okay. But God had a reason for ordaining these things for us so that we would use them so that we may grow in Christ. If you are a true believer, don't you desire to grow in Christ? Don't you want to grow in the grace of Christ? Then if you are sincere about the desire, how can you put off prayer? How can you put off Reading the Word. Again, I'm not saying it's easy. We should talk to each other about helps to form habits. But should we just abandon those things? Friend, if we are not praying, reading the Bible, or not really into the church service that we go to week after week, how are we any different than those who do not have a profession of faith in Christ? Do you see? And so... We read, He that believeth on him is not condemned. Do you truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Otherwise, how do you know that you are not still under this condemnation, that you are, as it says, 
not condemned already. Let us pray. O blessed Lord God Almighty, uh, take the dross and uh, the feeble attempts of preaching from the Word of God this morning and burn it up, and may there be only left there the purity of the Word of God, even that it may change us, that it may affect our lives as the Holy Spirit uses it in our hearts. O Lord, we know that these things are not easy for us because there is yet remaining in us that, that principle of corruption and sin. But, O oh Lord, you are greater than our sin. Even when we feel overwhelmed by our sin, where sin may abound, grace will abound all the more. And so, Lord, give us that faith. Increase our faith. Help us to be diligent about the means of grace, but help us not to trust in them, but to trust in you alone. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.